Welcome to Lab Chats, a podcast from the team at LabStats. I'm Tyler Jacobson, your host for today's episode. Each week, we'll sit down with technology leaders in higher education to get the latest buzz and insights while we discuss current events, trends, problems, and solutions. Now let's get into it. Joining us today, we have Ben Hambleton. Is that, did I pronounce that right? You did. Okay, Ben Hambleton with us, who is going to share with us um, a little bit more of a historical and vision perspective of higher education and IT. Uh, Ben, do you want to take a quick minute and and give your background and, and what brought you here today, where you're at today? Well, thank you, Tyler. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you. Uh, where do I start? I guess I'm really talking about what, who I used to be, right, rather than who I am now. <laughs> I started at uh, Boise State University in 1975. My graduate work was uh, focused on uh, instructional design. And so I was interested in course design, pedagogy, those kinds of things. And uh, I came from a department that also trained managers of educational media services, was what we call the academic IT side of things. There wasn't an IT at that point. It was AV uh, kind of uh, element. I had worked uh, for the university department there in designing a couple of management courses having to do with managing AV services. And uh, so I ended up with a job doing that. Uh, But my love and my desire was uh, for... uh, Uh, instructional design. I ended up spending 36 years at Boise State, saw lots of changes, uh, ended up as an assistant vice president and director of academic technologies. Uh, Started out with a department of five. We ended up with a department of 20 full-time employees in our own building that included a satellite uplink, microwave connections, and lots of other technologies that we acquired over the years as we moved it forward. So that's kind of where I'm at. Excellent. So one of the things that I I wanted to talk about really quickly up front is um, technology changes at an extremely rapid pace. And people claim to like technology, but they hate change. So how do you, as as somebody on campus that is driving the change through technology, how do you kind of reconcile and bring people that are apprehensive along for the ride when it comes to new tech or new processes? Well, Tyler, uh, that's kind of the theme of some of the remarks I wanted to make today is is, uh, how that process worked for us. And uh, I, I appreciate what you're saying about the rapid change in technology, but you need to go back to 1975 And that period through 85, 89, 90s, that technology was not as rapid a turnover as it is today. And the the kind of culture that our faculty were coming from was not infused with technology in the same way as it is today. And uh, and so, yeah, people have some resistance for change, but I think uh, the change is happening more rapidly all around them. Uh, And I mean, Look what COVID did for us, right? In terms of <laughs> promoting uh, distance learning and, and teleconferencing and, and online instruction and, and, and so forth. Uh, we didn't have a COVID. Uh, so the first set of years that, uh, that we worked um, was evolving a, an audiovisual service 
into uh, teleconferencing, uh, telecommunications of a variety of natures, uh, and and dealing with things like VHS or Betamax. You know, what what video format are we going to? Some of your listeners may not know either one of those. We had beta. We chose wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm familiar with that. Uh, so you know, we had those kinds of kinds of things. And we did learn a little bit about faculty and because of my love for instructional design and, and, and what I was charged to do in terms of instructional outcomes, um, we began to see that there were real differences in faculty in terms of their uh, uh, willingness to adopt technology and willingness to look at uh, course redesign that would incorporate technological tools as they become, became available. Um, so I think that, that that was an evolving process and it certainly accelerated in the last half of my um, career because the state of technology accelerated exponentially as it became much more digital based. And we had lots more tools coming available in a much more rapid pace. Uh, and so uh, I think the things we did early on helped set a cultural um, paradigm on our campus for dealing with it and accepting it and, uh, and utilizing it better. And I think what I'd like to do today is talk a little bit about how we got there. How did we, how did we set that paradigm? I would absolutely love to talk. So if you if you have ideas and thoughts, I'm just going to give you free reign to go for it. I do have a couple of questions that I may jump in with. So please do feel free. Um, I think one of the things that was kind of key for us, and I, and I know this is not something that's going to happen at every institution, but uh, I had been involved with uh, some professionals at other schools as we were looking at the fact that uh, in the 1970s, early 80s, the whole notion of faculty development was built around the idea of enhancing their expertise in their discipline. You're going to be a better teacher the more you know about your subject. And so faculty development was centered on uh, sabbatical leaves for additional uh, study, for uh, field experiences, for uh, uh, defined research projects. And the fact was that the majority of faculty on campus, mainstream faculty, had little or no formal training in teaching. Uh, pedagogical principles, uh, learning, to, uh, learning theories, uh, instructional design principles were foreign topics for them. And we found that uh, the majority of faculty weren't really interested in it either. <laughs> they, they felt that their, that their uh, ability to teach was going to be based on how they learned. Uh, on, and they were successful in a lecture demonstration kind of environment, if they were in a lab-oriented uh, discipline, then there was that kind of piece. But beyond looking at different models of instruction, looking at engagement, it wasn't there in many ways. Um, some faculty even had the notion that failure for students to learn was because they were not properly academically prepared to study, and it was their job to weed them out, uh, as opposed to saying, my job is to help every student learn this discipline uh, and this subject. And there's ways I can make that happen. So just to interject a little bit, when I was in school, there were the weed out classes. Uh, 
and they didn't really support those classes because if you couldn't cut it, it's best to find out early. And then you don't have student loan debt and they haven't wasted their time and you haven't wasted your time. When did that start changing? I think it began to change when people began to realize that most everyone is prepared to learn given the right kind of instructional model uh, and given the right kinds of experiences. Um, and, and I think, you know, always there was faculty on every campus, certainly on ours, that uh, their focus was student learning. I want to excite my students about my subject, about my discipline. I want them to master it and learn it. Um, and if they're not getting it, I need to figure out another way to do it. Um, but quite honestly, that wasn't mainstream um, kind of viewing uh, of that. Uh, people were generally more focused on their discipline than they were on teaching and learning outcomes. Uh, a high failure rate was often viewed as evidence that I'm a rigorous teacher giving good content out there. And the fact that these students aren't getting it means they're not ready for it, not that I'm an inadequate teacher. So how do you even start to approach that with them? Because they're not coming to you saying, hey, help me teach. Quite the opposite. They right. feel as though they know their subject matter, therefore their teaching is adequate. How do you even start to open up their idea that there could be a different way? Exactly. And uh, I think what we began to discover over time was that they were much more amenable to learning about uh, different ways of teaching and instructional design approaches, models of instruction and so forth, when it was embedded in something they needed to learn, they wanted to learn. So if there was a piece of technology that for one reason or another, they needed to incorporate in their teaching, they would tolerate, and I, that's a strong term, they would accept and utilize the, the uh, instructional design principles that were embedded in that training. So they weren't, it wasn't as much that they were learning how to teach. It was learning how to use the tools and the, the learning to teach came along with it. It came along with it in, in, in particularly in, in the sense of uh, how is this best used in your teaching? What are your objectives? What are the learning outcomes you're after? How, how can this technology make it more effective or more efficient for you? And when you begin that kind of analysis, you're doing course redesign. You're beginning to think more uh, profoundly about the outcomes that you're looking for and the kind of learning experiences that are going to help students get there. And when you begin thinking in that pattern, then all of a sudden you're willing to do a lot more to help teachers uh, interact. I'll give you a little snapshot of further down the story of what I mean. When we had reached the point where we're now working with digital technology, online, you know, computer-based instruction kind of thing, and um, students, they had an opportunity to interact with students individually offline, you know, out of, stu out of class. When I say offline, I mean out of class. And uh, one of the uh, faculty members said <clears throat> Uh, that a student hadn't responded to assignments and hadn't joined some of the discussion groups for some time. And so he messaged him and said, you know, hey, uh, what's up? What's going on? And uh, he said, oh, I'm sorry. I've had uh, a little tragedy in my family and I've gotten distracted by it. I'll try and get back on it. 
And the instructor wrote back and said, hey, no problem. If there's anything I can do to help, uh, I'm going to extend the deadline on this. And the student wrote back and said, thank you so much for caring. And the professor turned to the group and said, this was a training group, I have always cared. I've never had the tools to ex express that care and to make it work in the lives of students. That's and pretty powerful. That's very powerful. And to me, that was what we were trying to kind of achieve in all of the introduction for technologies is to empower faculty to do a more effective job and to see the, the options they had for teaching to be more effective. And part of that was because we had a leadership that commissioned us to do it. And uh, I think you know a little bit about that story, but uh, I think this would be an appropriate time to tell it because the rest of the story is based on that kind of thing. No, I'd love to jump right into that. So as I mentioned uh, and didn't get to or didn't finish, um, I was uh, interacting with colleagues from several universities while I was at Utah State before I came to Boise State about uh, putting together a federal grant um, for a, uh, to create a new organization called uh, the Northern Rockies Consortium for Higher Education. And, and what it was focused on was providing uh, grant money, incentives, and consultation for member schools that wanted to uh, put a new kind of faculty development program in. Uh, a, a faculty development program aimed at helping them be better teachers, not better scholars, okay? And so this was, the acronym was called NORCHI. And uh, we thought early on that one of the way, best ways to, to, to move this organization forward would be to have an advisory board of academic vice presidents. And, uh, and so I asked my academic vice president, Dr. Richard Bullington, if he would be on the advisory board of this new organization. And uh, he came uh, to his position as academic vice president uh, as a dean of ed education in another university. And uh, so he was, he, was in, he was insightful into that notion of teaching faculty to teach, uh, if you will. And so he was intrigued and he said, yes, he would do that. And he went down and he went to our first meeting. It was held at Bear Lake <laughs> down there on the border of Idaho and Utah. This organization kind of uh, encompassed Idaho, Montana, Utah, and uh, Wyoming, Northern Rockies. We got the grant. Uh, we set up the organization. We had about 17 to 20 member institutions to start with. And he liked what he heard. And on the way back, we were riding in the car together. And he said, you know, in World War II, I was a, a fighter pilot. And I said, wow, really? And he said, yeah. And he said, uh, I want to tell you about an organization that really helped us in the war. It was a thing called Skunk Works. And I looked at him. I'd never heard that term. I said, Skunk Works? And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, um, <clears throat> I want you to be our Skunk Works. Well, I didn't know whether he was about to be critical of me <laughs> or, or, or just what. But he went on to explain that the Germans had come forward with a jet fighter plane, the first jet fighter plane. And uh, the Allies were terribly concerned that it would create dominance in the air power uh, in, during the war. And uh, 
So the military went to Lockheed Martin, who was building bombers and other planes for the military, and said, we need a jet fighter plane. It has to have these specs, and, and we need it right away. And uh, so the, the, the company formed a, a secret organization that uh, was commissioned to do this. They were given carte blanche for assembling their team. Uh, they were given organizational, uh, uh, what I say, freedom uh, in, in terms of the bureaucracy and the normal organizational protocols. They could operate outside of that in this mission. They were to deliver a jet plane, the first to come out of the United States, out of the Allies, really, uh, in 180 days or less. And, wow. Uh, and so they ended up in operation in a, a building off the campus of Lockheed Martin next to a, an old deserted brewery. And it stunk like heck. <laughs> <laughs> and it reminded them of a current comic strip at the time called Little Abner. And Little Abner characters operated a secret still. And among the secret ingredients were dead skunks. <laughs> 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 and they called their operation the Skunk Works. And so the, the, the members of this Lockheed Martin team that were putting this together, and they got the plane out in 143 days, I understand, that uh, they prototyped and got this out in secret, uh, a part of the organization, but not part of the organization, you know, to be able to operate outside of the normal boundaries and protocols and bureaucracy of the organization. They called it the Skunk Works and that name held for a long time. And the story of that after the war um, was the impetus for a lot of major corporations to create skunk work organizations to bring about innovations in their industries. I'd never heard about it, but he told me this story and he said, that's what I want you and your organization to do is to bring about innovation and teaching in our campus and I will be there for you. Um, to uh, you just tell me when this is a, a skunk works project and I'll see what I can do to support you. That's a lot of power. So what did you do from there? Like if, if you're given, as you put it, carte blanche, where do you start to prioritize what needs to happen and, and how do you build your team? Because you're probably going to need a very different skill set, a different mentality for that type of a team. Where did you start? Yeah, well, initially, we simply started with evolving the organization. It was originally a AV support uh, service out of the College of Education. So we moved to make it a, a, a university-wide organization, uh, first in the library and then as a separate organization. Uh, the first areas that we began to move into was, was telecommunications. We began looking at how we can use the telecommunications technology in the late 70s, early 80s to deliver education to off-campus audiences. So we started with uh, microwave. Uh, there was a, a program called ITFS. It's a reserve frequency for short distance microwave point-to-point -point communications. And you know we had places that uh, Hewlett Packard and Micron Technologies and, and uh, at the air base and at public libraries and in public schools where teachers could come right after school in their school setting and take classes from the university. Um, 
So that was kind of where we started with the telecommunication. We got a, a cable channel and began offering classes into the home. We uh, started using Idaho Public Television, their microwave connections to the three campuses, the major campuses, Idaho State and the University of Idaho and Boise State, to share classes back and forth. Uh, we began teaching. Uh, the whole thing became known as uh, Boise State's Knowledge Network. And uh, we experimented with radio. We, uh, um, we also uh, began teaching. The State Department of Education came to us and said, we like what you're doing, what we're, uh, but there are some small rural schools in Idaho that the students are um, handicapped because there's not enough students to warrant the expense for advanced mathematics and foreign languages. And so getting into some of the top schools, they are really disadvantaged. What can you do to help us? So we began teaching Spanish over public broadcasting. We began teaching advanced math over it, using master teachers from the Boise district to teach to these smaller schools. And you did that through, was that through the public television? It is. It was through because the public television. I actually watched a few of those classes and it was quite entertaining because it was in a presentable, relatable way, and, and it was interesting because the presentation was good. And then when it came time for me to learn those in school, I was like, oh, I've already done that. <laughs> uh, because uh, I grew up in a household where we only public television was one of the staples because it's one of the three channels we had. And so by default, I got to watch some of those programs. So I find it fascinating that you were involved in that and, and to learn some of the behind the scenes of how math came to public television. So I yeah. find that fascinating. And it, uh, it worked really well. It was one-way video, two-way audio with classrooms set up in these small schools. And they taught, they bust in students from the Boise schools and uh, they taught a, a class in front of them and we captured it on camera with multiple cameras and the microphones. And it was kind of state of the art at the time in terms of video capture and delivery. And our instructors became celebrities. They got stopped in the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. So, so that, that's where we started with. Okay. But one of the things that we found with all of that telecommunication applications is it didn't make a lot of difference on campus in changing the culture. We had individual, innovative, early adopter faculty involved in these things and in a lot of things of their own initiative. But in the parlance of today's social media, they were not influencers. The, the mainstream faculty didn't identify with them. That's not me. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm not going in front of a camera and, and teaching right. that way. Um, and so we began thinking, you know, okay, yeah, we're doing a lot of good things. We're building uh, a, a lot of bridges, but we're not changing the practice for the majority of the classrooms in our campus. Fortunately, um, all of that, began to coalesce about the time digital technology started coming along. And I became acquainted with Dr. Rogers' theory of the diffusion of innovation. And, uh, and in his theory, he uh, postulated and then proved through research that I think still is, to this day is solid, that uh, 
innovation diffuses through an audience over time as various groups adopt it. And there are early adopters and middle adopters and late adopters and laggards. And, uh, and each of those groups have different characteristics and different things appeal to them. And uh, their adoption is dependent on different factors. And so you need to know who your target market is and what their characteristics are. And you need to get strategies aimed at those. And you need the right kind of, we called it necessary and sufficient conditions. Uh, what kind of environment are they operating in? What are the necessary and sufficient conditions to make them want to do this? And then uh, third, um, what kind of uh, reward uh, recognition uh, and community can you build? And he suggested you really had to have a critical mass of people adopting before it really diffuses, it takes off, get gains momentum. So we had to figure out how are we going to get to that critical mass of people willing to adopt? What are the sufficient necessary conditions? And who exactly is our audience and what are their characteristics? And we really began seriously thinking about those things and trying to put them together. And it became very clear very quickly that I certainly didn't have a staff with sufficient number of skills and experiences to do that by ourselves. And uh, so one of the first things we did was propose a grant to the State Department of Education, or not, to the State Board of Education, that was our institution's boss. I had been collaborating and sharing thoughts and ideas with my colleagues at the University of Idaho and at Idaho State. And one of the, one of the big things that the board was concerned about at those days is that uh, these institutions seemed to always be competing, never collaborating, right? And, uh -huh. uh, and so we said, well, here's a way we could collaborate on bringing about the training materials needed to train faculty to use these technologies, these new technologies, and to embed in it the instructional design things we need. So we talked about the fact that there was a, a, a real chasm between the early adopters and the middle and late adopters uh, in terms of adoption of, of, of innovation. And so we came up with a bridging the chasm grant proposal that would fund us to go out and gather the best thinking, the best training materials then available from institutions all over, including our own people, and put together these training materials for our faculty. And then as we thought about it, we said, you know, really, why are they gonna do that for us? <laughs> these media and, and academic technology specialists. So we went to my vice president and I said, I got a Skunk Works project for you. Told him about it and he said, oh, perfect. That's exactly what we need. They need to hear us the vice presidents and the presidents wanting to collaborate, they'll give us the money. And, uh, and so they did, they proposed the grant to, to bridge the chasm by having these training materials and stuff developed for all three institutions. And uh, quite honestly, I'm, I was terribly proud of the end result of that. It was fabulous. But even more important was the strategic importance of what took place there. I'd like to say 
we thought this out, but we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it was purely practical. You know, who's going to get the money? The VPs are going to get the money, not us. Once they got the money, and this was this collaborative multi-institutional project, by golly, it needed to succeed, right? We needed to train faculty. We needed people to use these training materials, and they needed to publicize this collaborative effort that they were doing uh, to politically gain, you know, uh, credence with the, with the board and with their constituencies. So right away, we had this buy-in from top management, if you will, from top leadership of the institution on developing training materials aimed at helping faculty understand and learn how and when to use um, the digital technologies that were coming. This concludes part one of our discussion with Ben Hamilton. You can join us next week to hear more about how they leverage the Skunks Works program in order to help drive real change on campus. We look forward to having you back in order to finish the discussion. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of Lab Chats. Be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when a new Lab Chats episode is posted each week. We'll see you next time.